I'm going to start with Hebrews chapter 12 and then jump to Psalm 63, which we've been reading every week. When God spoke from Mount Sinai, his voice shook the earth. But now he makes another promise. Once again, I will shake not only the earth, but the heavens also. This means that the earth, this means that all of creation will be shaken and removed so that only unshakable things will remain. Since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. For our God is an all-consuming fire. This is Psalm 63. O God, you are my God. I earnestly search for you. My soul thirsts for you. My whole body longs for you in this parched and weary land where there is no water. I have seen you in your sanctuary and gazed upon your power and glory. Your unfailing love is better than life itself. How I praise you. I will praise you as long as I live, lifting up my hands to you in prayer. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. You satisfy me more than the richest feast. I will praise you with songs of joy. Let's worship together. Well, good morning. Good morning to those of you here in the room and those of you joining us online. Um, I hope that this beautiful sunny morning that you are experiencing the joy of Jesus um, as we sing together, as we're going to hear from his word, and as we're just together. So we're so grateful for that. Uh, just a couple of announcements for you. Um, the first is coming up on Wednesday, November 18th, is going to be our all-church day of prayer. And so there's a few different ways that you can engage with that. Um, the first one is I'm going to invite you. There's a sign-up sheet out in the lobby on the tall tables. So if you want to sign up for a 15-minute slot, you can pray from wherever you are for those 15 minutes. Um, and then throughout the day, we'll also be having Zoom meetings. So we'll be sending out, I think Kyle already sent the links out to those. And then at 7.30 p.m., we'll be here in this room and online, and we'll have a time of prayer and singing. And so we just want to invite you to, to join us. Um, the last time that we did that, it was a really unique experience of praying together and seeing God at work. Um, and I just even personally really benefited from that. So I want to invite you to join us with that, even if it's just praying for 15 minutes from wherever you're at throughout your day. Um, so the sign-up sheet for that is out there. If you haven't signed up for um, a gratitude photo for the month of November, we still have a few slots left at the end of the month. So you can see either Preston or myself after. Um, I forgot the sheet, so we'll just have to take your name and let you know the dates um, that we have available. So we'll be doing that as well. And then I felt, oh, if you are a parent in the room, um, one of the things we've been doing throughout this fall is the parent cohort. And that's an online Zoom meeting for an hour, hour and a half on Saturday mornings. And we're having our November one this next Saturday. So even if you haven't joined the previous ones and you'd like to jump in, we'd love to invite you. It's been a really great um, experience to kind of share just what parenting uh, obstacles we've been having, ways to <laughs> invite, <laughs> I'm trying, nice words, challenges that we've been having as parents. Um, and then also just how can we continue to disciple our kids and how can we invite Jesus more and more into our homes and do that in really practical ways. So if that's something you're interested in, let Kyle or I know and we'll send you the Zoom link. But again, you just do it from home. You jump on from Zoom. We also um, send out the link. So if you can't be there but would like to hear kind of the conversation and what, what we're talking about, you're welcome to do that as well. 
Um, and finally, if you're not getting our texts or our emails, um, that's the way that we send out the um, RSVP reminders and all of that, then we'd invite you to sign up in the back on the Hay card. Um, so you can just make sure that you're getting the information for what's coming up here at Regen. And now we're going to move into our giving time. Um, we continue to do this giving liturgy because we want to make sure that we're not just giving money, but that we're connecting our generosity with what God's doing here in our community and in our spiritual family. So go ahead and join me as we read the giving liturgy. Holy Father, there is nothing I have that you have not given me. All I have and am belong to you, bought with the blood of Jesus. To spend everything on myself and to give without sacrifice is the way of the world that you cannot abide. But generosity is the way of those who call Christ their Lord, who love him with free hearts and serve him with renewed minds, who withstand the delusion of riches that chokes the word, whose hearts are in your kingdom and not in the systems of the world. I am determined to increase in generosity until it can be said that there is no needy person among us. I am determined to be trustworthy with such a little thing as money that you may trust me with true riches. Above all, I am determined to be generous because you, Father, are generous. It is the delight of your daughters and sons to share your traits and to show what you are like to all the world. I was thinking about how fickle we are because depending on how you feel today about the election, um, God bringing light either has happened because of that or is happening despite of that, right? And he does that regardless of how you view these circumstances. So God does not stand in the middle of two parties. He's doing this third thing entirely. Jesus says, repent and believe the good news for the kingdom of God is at hand. That's why we're here. And any likeness to the kingdom of God that one or either party has, and either party has it, likeness to the kingdom, they don't have the whole of it. And so whether you are celebrating today or feeling an alien in your country today, remember that four years ago, other people felt similarly. And let's take our eyes off of human rulers that can be shaken and, and place our eyes on Jesus, right? Okay, so let's pray. Father, we've come to be, uh, to further indoctrinate ourselves into the citizenship of your kingdom, of a gospel that is not, uh, in a gospel that is not fake news, but is truth, of a gospel that has no bias except your own. And so we've come to give you our hearts and our praise and our lives. So shape us and form us today. May the words of my mouth, may the meditations of my heart, our heart be pleasing, acceptable, fruitful, equipping, and helpful to your body, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. If you've got a Bible, go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 6. Acts chapter 6, we're going to start in verse 8, Acts chapter 6. Um, 
In addition to all the other activity, I'm gonna be leading the, the huddle. There's a huddle for students sixth grade through 12th. Is that how that works, honey? Uh, there's a huddle for an online huddle for students grades six through 12, and I'm gonna be leading that the next two Thursday nights. I'll be leading that the next two Thursday nights. So if you wanna maybe give that a try and find out that talking about Jesus with your peers is not the craziest thing you've ever done, you can do that. Um, but we're gonna be in Acts chapter six. When uh, you think of debating, it's not actually something that crosses our minds too often, having a debate. Uh, it comes across our radar about every four years when presidential candidates debate, but that's not actually a debate, is it? It's, it's them giving, it's each candidate giving their stump speech in three-minute increments while also taking swipes at their opponent. That's not really a debate. They're not debating the ideas, are they? They're just kind of stating their opinions. You might be thinking about debate if you are a speech and debate student or if your kids or grandkids are doing speech and debate, but debating is not something that we really think about all that often, but if we were living in the first century within the boundaries of the Roman Empire, we would think about debate like a lot of people think about Ohio State football games. They are not to be missed. They are exciting. Uh, in, in the Greco-Roman world, two great thinkers or philosophers of differing camps would gather in the public square in the Areopagus uh, of any town, and crowds would gather, and as they debated, they, they booed, and they cheered, and they celebrated. It was a thing to see. And while debate doesn't necessarily take that form where we all gather at Courthouse Square and listen to two people go back and forth. Debate is happening all of the time, all of the time. It is happening right now on CNN and Fox News and NBC and ABC and MSNBC. It is happening in your social media feeds. To my horror, political debates, ideological debates have now creeped into Instagram. And if you're arguing with people on Instagram, you need to leave, because Instagram is our happy place, okay? You can do that on Facebook, Grandma, but not, don't, no, no, don't be bringing that to my happy place with my filters, you know what I'm saying? We're debating all of the time. We're also a culture, not only are we debating, truth is up for grabs. I don't know if a story is true because I can't tell the bias of the person telling it to me. So I leave Facebook and go to another social media site where it's the real news about conservative politics, the real news about the president. I disregard Fox News and slices like that because it's the real news about what's going on in our country. We don't know what truth is anymore. And in this mess, here are you and I with truth that is clear and compelling and undeniable, with a bias of its own regard, in a world where debate is happening all the time. Well, how do we live in that world? I'll tell you what we don't do. We don't say, uh, preach the gospel at all times when necessary, use words. It is always necessary to use words. It is always necessary to use words. How do we do that? How do we engage? How do we press in in this cultural moment? As we look to Stephen, Stephen who Steph introduced us to last week as we looked at the story of the first deacons, we find a model and a guide and example for engaging in a post-Christian culture and a post-truth culture in this cultural moment. So let's look at Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8. Acts chapter 6, starting in verse 8. It says, Stephen, 
a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. But one day, some men from the synagogue of freed slaves, as it was called, started to debate with him. They were Jews from Cyrene, Alexandria, Cilicia, and the province of Asia. Asia in the Bible is Turkey, generally speaking. None of them could stand against the wisdom and the spirit with which Stephen spoke. So they persuaded some men to lie about Stephen, saying, We heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. There would have been like a... This roused the people, the elders, and the teachers of religious law. So they arrested Stephen. They brought him before the high council. The lying witnesses, verse 13, the lying witnesses said, this man is always speaking against the holy temple and against the law of Moses. We have heard him say this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and change the customs of Moses handed down to him. Verse 15, if you've got your own Bible, I'd underline this. At this point, Everyone in the high council stared at Stephen because his face became as bright as an angel's. We meet Stephen in verses 1 through 7 of this chapter, and and what do we know about Stephen? We know that Stephen is one of the first deacons. He's one of the first, a deacon is a Greek word, diakonos, it means servant. uh, Stephen is chosen to serve the Greek and Jewish widows that are part of the community to distribute food to them. But as we continue reading, we find a few other things. We find that Stephen is full of the spirit and wisdom. We find that Stephen is one of the first deacons. We find that he's well-respected. We find that he's full of God's grace and power, that he performed many miraculous signs. Stop, stop here and notice this. Until this point, we've only seen the apostles performing signs and wonders. Well, now we see Stephen doing it. And Stephen doesn't have this ability because a few verses ago, the apostles laid hands on him. Stephen was just one of many people in the body of Christ practicing the supernaturally supernatural lifestyle of Jesus. Working miracles is not something reserved for the few super spiritual. It's something made available to all. Why? Because Jesus says, you will do the same kinds of things that I do and what? Even greater works. We find that Stephen speaks with wisdom and the spirit, and by the end of this chapter, we'll find that Stephen is the first martyr, the first man to die for his faith. That's why this icon, it says St. Stephen, the proto-martyr, the first martyr. In Acts 6, Stephen is preaching to a synagogue full of Jews, trying to get them to repent and place their faith in the true Messiah, in Jesus this pre- The preaching time ultimately turns into a debate. And Stephen wins this debate. He's wise, he's insightful, he's powerful speaker, he's cogent, he's coherent. But those who sought to debate Stephen turn out to be sore losers. They gather some folks to slander Stephen. They accuse Stephen saying, we heard him blaspheme Moses and even God. This blasphemy, it's lost to us in, because we're not Jews practicing uh, temple worship in the first century, but this would be like spitting in the face of a veteran and burning the American flag in the middle of a Veterans Day parade. As you can imagine, this gets the people rankled. You might say it gets their undies in a bunch. 
And so, before you know it, Stephen is brought before the Sanhedrin. Yes, the Sanhedrin, the same group of people, the subcommittee of which tried Peter and John in Acts chapter 3, in Acts chapter 4, the same whole group that tried and flogged the apostles in Acts chapter 5. Now, here in Acts chapter 6, Stephen, full of grace and the Spirit's power, has been drugged before them, and they leverage accusations, and they ask, are these accusations true? And Stephen responds with a sermon. Stephen's sermon, it's recorded in Acts chapter 7, verse 2, through Acts 7, 53. It's 51 verses long. I'm not going to read it all to you, but I would ask you to go home and read it this week, because it's an incredible defense of practicing the way of Jesus. It's a defense of the truthfulness of Jesus' claims to kingship and messiahship, and it's taken from the Old Testament. And when I say the Old Testament, I mean like the whole Old Testament. I'm talking like our top 20 Sunday school greatest hits. It's it's Abraham coming out of Mesopotamia. It's uh, Joseph heading to Egypt and rising to power and the Egyptian slavery there. It's Moses wandering on the far side of the desert and encountering God in the burning bush. It's wandering in the wilderness and worshiping in the tabernacle, the tent of meeting. It's, It's worshiping in the temple, this temple that David envisioned and Solomon constructed. And Stephen isn't choosing stories at random. It's not like he had to get out like his Sunday school book, like his children's Bible, and was just kind of like flipping through while he was preaching the sermon. Stephen is choosing moments in Israel's history that respond directly or indirectly to the charges that have been leveled against him. He's responding directly or indirectly on the fly to the charges that have been leveled against him. See, Stephen is charged with speaking against Moses. So he weaves the whole life and journey of Moses into his sermon, how Moses played such a significant role in salvation history, how Moses prophesied that there would be a prophet like Moses, but greater than Moses, that would come after Moses, and that that prophet is Jesus. They're all concerned about the temple. He's spoken against the temple. I don't know, I was raised in church, not all of us were, but when I was raised in church, my grandma said, you don't run in the Lord's house. Okay. How the Jews in first century Palestine feel about the temple is don't run in the Lord's house times infinity in intensity, right? We don't talk bad about the temple. We don't dress poorly at the temple. We worship at the temple. We love the temple. We take care of the temple. We talk about the temple in good terms. The temple, the temple, the temple, the temple. And what happened is that became this idolatry of a place. We can only meet God at the temple because the temple is, well, you know, it's the temple, and so what Stephen does in his sermon, it's so interesting, he, he highlights all of these people that met God in places that are not the temple. How God spoke to Abram in Mesopotamia, how Moses spoke to God on Mount Sinai, how they met God in the Sinai wilderness, all of these stories. He brings in the prophets, he, he brings in the Psalms. Stephen is addressing this, this is what his sermon about, his sermon is about Israel's repeated rejection and rebellion against God manifested in idolatry. Israel throughout their whole history has consistently rebelled against God over and over again, constantly rejected him, rejected his prophets, rejected his kings, because they were too busy worshiping things other than the Lord. In this case, Stephen is accusing, and here's what's so interesting, as Stephen is being accused and as he's giving his own defense, he's also subtly laying out an accusation of his own. You've rebelled against God. You've rejected God. You have worshipped power and you have worshipped place. 
You have worshipped power and you have worshipped place. The Jews of Jesus' time got very comfortable with their Roman occupiers. They developed a symbiotic relationship between empire and religion that what happened is everybody's pockets were lined, everybody's was kept safe, everybody was made comfortable, everybody, as long as you were a Jew, their rights were protected. He said, you have lusted after power. So he shows them all of these powerful people that God has chosen on his own accord. You have lusted after power and you have become far too attached to place. Stephen says, the temple isn't the only place to meet God. This is something that we learned in COVID, isn't it? I don't need a building to worship the Lord. It's not about the building. It's not about the place. It's about the divine person that meets me there. He's leveraging these charges against them, that you have rebelled against God, that you have rejected God, that you have engaged in idolatry of power and place, and that this has reached its zenith in your rebellion against Jesus the Messiah, your rejection of Jesus the Messiah, and your slaughter of the innocent Lamb of God, Jesus the Messiah, so that you could stay comfortable with your power and your place. And so, and so Stephen ends his sermon this way in verse 51. You stubborn people, you are heathen at heart and deaf to the truth. I don't see those verses on a Hobby Lobby plaque on a regular basis. <laughs> Must you forever resist the Holy Spirit? That's what your ancestors did, and so do you. Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They killed even the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah, whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. And I want you to picture the Sanhedrin listening to this sermon, and they, they, are, y'all, they are hanging on every word, just like you do for me every sermon I've ever preached to you. You're just with me, and you remember every word and every detail. And... Uh, it's okay if you don't remember sermons, by the way. That's kind of how they work. I can remember like clearly two or three sermons in my life. There's something subconscious. Here's, here's why we preach. Something subconsciously and at the level of your spirit happens while we preach. It's how we're formed. So as the Sanhedrin's watching them, they all have their phones out. Okay? And they're like, they're like tweeting the lines out of this. And they're like posting it. See, some of them are posting to Instagram and we don't like those people. But some of them are posting to Facebook right? But they're doing that not because they like it. They're not saying, wow, this is amazing. You need to hear this. They're saying everybody needs to come and get this guy right now. They're trying to start a riot. They're trying to start a murder. Dare I say, they're trying to start something that looks a lot like lynching. Verse 54 says, the Jewish leaders were infuriated by Stephen's accusation. And they shook their fists at him in rage. Let's bring that back. You know, like, let's make handshaking great again. You know, like I want, oh, like a, other translations say they gnashed their teeth. They've lost their minds. Like they have tolerated these Jewish followers of Jesus for long enough. And now like this sermon is the straw that, that breaks the camel's back. Or maybe like it's the, 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 the anvil dropped from the sky on Wiley, Wiley Coyote's head. It says in verses 57 and 58, they put their hands over their ears and began shouting. In other words, they just logged onto Facebook, right? They, they put their hands over their ears. They began shouting. They rushed at him and they dragged him out of the city and began to stone him. His accusers took off their coats 
and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. Now listen, when you stone someone in the Bible, you're not just grabbing a pebble or like gravel and winging it at them. When you stone someone in the Bible, you're getting like one of those big rocks that landscapers use. And you're hefting it at this person who's probably tied up and lying on the ground. And you're throwing it. And it doesn't just like, ow, that breaks bones. And you keep stoning that person until every bone in their body is shattered. You keep stoning that person until they don't breathe anymore. You keep stoning that person until their blood is pouring out over the ground. And as Stephen's bones are breaking, as his lungs are pierced by his own ribs, he's granted a vision of heaven. Look at verses 55 and 56. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed steadily into heaven and saw the glory of God. And he saw Jesus standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. If, if you uh, or have your own Bible, circle the word standing. That he told them, look, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing, circling that again, standing in the place of honor at God's right hand. Luke gets really specific. He slows down the action on the play in the next couple verses, and I'll tell you why. Um, but notice that Luke says that Stephen sees Jesus standing. In any vision that people have of heaven, and in any time they talk about Jesus in his glory, they say that he is what? Sitting at God's right hand in his place of honor. But now Jesus is standing. Why is Jesus standing? I think two reasons. I think first of all, Jesus is standing as a witness in Stephen's defense. Did you notice there's no witness brought for the defense? There's no witness brought for the prosecution. There's no trial. So Stephen has one defender. It's the only one that matters. Jesus stands as his witness in heaven. But I also think that Jesus is standing because you and I know that it's the polite thing to do to stand when someone walks into a room. You and I know it's the polite thing to do to stand when someone walks into a room, and it seems that Jesus is standing to welcome Stephen to heaven, to welcome him home. And as Stephen dies, Stephen prays. In verses 59 and 60, it says, As they stoned him, Stephen prayed, Lord, receive my spirit. And he fell to his knees, shouting, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. And with that, he died. Luke is intentionally overlaying Stephen's death onto the death of Jesus. Jesus, who crucified, breathes his last and says, into your hands I commit my spirit. Who in his last moment says, forgive them, Father, I forgive, they know not what they do. Jesus and Stephen's death are so similar, which is why Paul will write in Philippians 3, I want to share in his sufferings. I want to become like him in his death, that in some way I might attain resurrection from the dead. That's not poetic. It's just not a nice sentiment to sing about. This is literal truth happening literally that, that Stephen's death, he finds honor in it. In verse 758, it said that there was a young man named Saul there who held their coats. And in chapter 8, verse 1, we pick up on Saul's story. It says, verse 1, chapter 8, Saul was one of the witnesses, and he agreed completely with the killing of Stephen. 
By the way, this is why, this verse is why that some scholars think that Paul is present in the Sanhedrin when Peter and John are tried in Acts 4 and when the apostles are tried in Acts 5, which is also why scholars say this is why we know what the proceedings were because Saul, when he became Paul, ratted him out. Saul, one of the witnesses, if you're not familiar with the Bible, by the way, here's why this is important. When we get to chapter 9, Saul, who in this verse is going to be radically persecuting Christians, will have this radical encounter with Jesus, and he becomes Paul the Apostle, a.k.a. the author of a vast majority of the New Testament, right? But first we meet him this way. Saul, one of the witnesses, agreeing completely with the killing of Stephen. A great wave of persecution began that day, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except the apostles were scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria. Now, parenthesis, some devout men came and buried Stephen with great mourning. That's also just like the burial of Jesus. But Saul was going everywhere to destroy the church. Did you notice he wasn't just tweeting things that make you upset? He was going everywhere, dragging out both men and women to throw them into prison. Why drag out women? Because they were leaders in the church. Today we're going to leave the book of Acts until January. And we leave the book of Acts as Christians in Jerusalem are leaving the city and fleeing for their lives. Uh, between now and then, we're going to do some teaching on money for the next two Sundays, so I imagine our attendance will be very low. Um, and then on the last Sunday of this month, that's the beginning of Advent, which is that time in the church year where we prepare for Christmas. And we're, uh, about a year and a half ago, I had an idea for this series, Who Stole My Christmas? Who Stole My Christmas? And then 2020 happened. <laughs> so... Um, Randy Banning, actually, on the 29th, will be preaching the first message in that series on how grief and loss tries to steal Christmas. We leave the book of Acts as these Christians are fleeing for their lives, and Saul of Tarsus, a Jew of Jews, a zealot's zealot, he has put his hands to persecuting Christians. He is dragging men and women from their homes, from their house churches, right? The apostles did what? They went, they went house to house to preach the gospel, and Saul goes, that's a good idea. So he kicks in the door and drags them out while they're worshiping. Saul is at the head of a wave of persecution so intense, so terrible, that the church in Jerusalem scatters. They scatter to Galilee, to Samaria, to Antioch, and beyond and remarking on this wave of persecution, St. John Chrysostom says, mark how once more, mark how once more God permits trials to arise. Mark and well observe how the events are ordered by divine providence. The persecution that the early church experiences, it's not a bizarre twist of fate. It is not a random tragedy. It is tragic but God always takes the tragic things of our lives and grabs them up and wraps them into his own purposes. And in this case, his purpose is this. He told the church, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And until Acts chapter 8, where have they been? Jerusalem. And so God uses this persecution as a spark, as a catalyst to scatter his church so that they lay the groundwork for revival among the Samaritans and to everybody's horror, Gentiles. The book of Acts is about race. 
The book of Acts is about theologized racism. So another church father, Tertullian, says the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Martyrs, those who die for their faith, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Historically speaking, the more difficult it is for Christians to be Christians in their culture, the more the church thrives. Historically speaking, the more difficult it is for Christians to be Christians in their culture, the more the church thrives. This is true in the first century here. It's true in Germany in the days leading up to World War II where church after church after church joined the Nazi party and replaced pictures of Jesus with pictures of Adolf Hitler. It's true today in the Middle East and China that the places where it is most difficult to be Christians is the place where the church is thriving. Do not fear persecution, fear comfort. American Christians, for American Christians, nothing is more terrifying than the thought of persecution. But what we see over and over again in church history, what we see over and over again in the book of Acts is that persecution is the doorway to what American Christians tell me they want all the time. They want revival, they want renewal, they want a nation turned back to God. The gospel spreads in the book of Acts, despite or maybe even because of the persecution. And we can't help but wonder, when we work overtime to protect ourselves from persecution, are we also preventing the revival that we so long to see? When we work overtime to protect ourselves from persecution, are we preventing the revival that we say we want to see? After studying the life of Stephen, after studying the life of Stephen this week, Steph said to me, aren't you glad that Jack's middle name is Stephen? And I said, absolutely. Steph's dad is named Stephen, so Steph is named Stephanie. And now we have a Jack Stephen. And in his room, in his room, there's been a verse on a letter board, Psalm 119, from Psalm 119, I will run in the paths of your commandments, for you have set my heart free. Our prayer for Jack since before he was born is that he wouldn't like stroll in the ways of the Lord, that he wouldn't walk in the ways of the Lord, but that he would sprint in the ways of the Lord, right? And, and uh, but this week we changed the verse. And by we, I mean Steph did it while we were watching a Hallmark movie. <clears throat> <laughs> and uh, it now says, Stephen, a man full of God's grace and power, performed amazing miracles and signs among the people. Stephen is bold and winsome and wise and gracious. Stephen is the first in a long line of apologists. An apologist isn't someone who offers an apology in the sense that they say, oh, I'm so sorry for that. An apologist offers a defense. Stephen, in his sermon, offers a wise, insightful, cogent, coherent defense of the Christian faith, a defense of the claims of Jesus, And he invites his hearers to respond. He's not a philosopher. He's not an evangelist. He is something both and more than. Stephen is an apologist. And friends, whether or not you realize it, you are an apologist too. You are an apologist too. By what you say, by what you do, by what you share, by how you drive, especially if you have one of those like I love Jesus bumper stickers, bad call. 
Do you know why we as a church don't have like logo stickers for our cars? Because the last thing the world needs to know is that I go to this church and I'm that bad of a driver. Do you know what I'm saying? We are all apologists. In fact, Oz Guinness, in his book, Fool's Talk, Recovering the Art of Christian Persuasion, he says that we are living in the grand era of apologetics, that branch of theology in which we defend the faith. He says, from the shortest texts and tweets, to the humblest website, to the angriest blog, to the most visited social network, the daily communications of the wired world attest that everyone is now in the business of relentless self-promotion presenting themselves, explaining themselves, defending themselves, selling themselves, and sharing their inner thoughts and emotions as never before in human history. This is why, he says, this is why it can be said that we are in the grand secular age of apologetics. The whole world has taken up apologetics without ever using the idea as Christians understand it. Now, you may feel uncomfortable with the idea of I'm an apologist, so let me ask you this question. By show of hands, how many of you have shared uh, an opinion this week? Okay, some of you don't have hands up. How many of you have shared an opinion this week? Okay. How many of you have shared an opinion to someone you knew wouldn't like what you were saying? How many of you that happened in the context of marriage and need to meet with Steph and I this week? Just kidding, okay. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> suddenly hands are like, okay. I saw that, you too. <laughs> okay. Barely did your wedding like 30 seconds ago, good Lord. Os Guinness says, and I have this on the screen, what does the grand age of apologetics mean for us as followers of Jesus? Our age is quite simply the greatest opportunity for Christian witness since the time of Jesus and the apostles. That our response should be to seize the opportunity with bold and imaginative enterprise. The state of the world is lamentable, it's true, but what we have learned or what God has been teaching us over the last six months is to see what feels like a limitation as an opportunity. It's not a wall, it's a diving board. And there's a rich opportunity before us which is why we simply must, every single one of us, take up our calling to be apologists. We need more Stevens. We need men and women who are wise in the scriptures. We need men and women who are gracious and insightful. We need men and women who can skillfully and biblically articulate the gospel and who can do so with gentleness and kindness. We need both the competency of Stephen and the character of Stephen. And I want to talk about each of those for just a second. Because there are three skills that Stephen demonstrates uh, here in this passage. The first skill is regurgitating large swaths of the Bible on the fly. Stephen's relationship with, with, the, with the scriptures is so intense and authentic and ongoing that it just shapes the way he speaks that when asked to give a defense of his life and his faith, he says, well, let me tell you about a guy named Abraham and he does a Bible study. Stephen is capable of and living a naturally supernatural lifestyle. He is 
doing many signs and wonders among the people, and it's for that reason that the door is open for him to preach the gospel. By the way, this is why we're so interested in the naturally supernatural lifestyle of Jesus, because in a world of fake news where I can't believe that source because they're biased or that source because they're biased, what cuts through the fog and the confusion and the mud is a demonstration of the Spirit's power. He's living a naturally supernatural lifestyle, he's ingesting the scriptures, and he's bold. I tend to hear a lot of Christians tell me that they they don't like to talk about their faith because it's so personal. And forgive me, I don't see that stopping you from talking about politics, which are just as personal. I don't see that stopping us from saying our opinions. There's a competency to take on of Scripture and boldness and walking by the power of the Spirit. But even more than the character, I mean, even more than the skills is the character. And this is the part I want to leave you with because, frankly, it's not enough to do the kinds of things that Stephen does. It's doing them in the way that Stephen does them. Stephen is an apologist of competency and character. He knows what to do, but it springs from an integrity and a maturity. So let's just compare for one minute Stephen's response to his accusers, Stephen's response to his accusers with the response of his accusers themselves. Right before Stephen preaches, everybody in the high council can't look away because Stephen's face glows like an angel. And then in verses 55 and 56, Stephen is granted a vision of heaven that is so inspiring and life-giving that he prays for forgiveness even as he dies. And Stephen prays for his accusers. He says, Lord, don't charge them with this sin. He is gracious. He is kind. He is forgiving. He is gentle. Meanwhile, Stephen's accusers are angry and infuriated, and they shake their fists in rage, and they put their hands over their ears to stop hearing what he said. They shout. They yell. Stephen is faced with anger and hostility and accusation. He's put on the defensive, and yet he remains gracious and kind and at peace. And nothing could, be, nothing could be more upside down than our cultural moment, because in our cultural moment, the more right you are, the more possession of truth you have, the angrier, the nastier, the more self-righteous, the more condescending, the more sarcastic you're allowed to be. See, in our cultural moment, we demonstrate truthfulness and accuracy and correctness with anger and sarcasm. This is the era of puggish self-righteousness. This is the era of condescension. This is the era of I'm right and you're wrong, and you're wrong because you're stupid and morally morally inferior. And so we post and we share and we talk, and we talk in a way and about people in a way that is rude and unkind and not generous and not giving the benefit of the doubt, and we feel like we can get away with it because we're right and they're wrong. And enter into that picture, Stephen. Who lives into the proverb, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Stephen's correctness is proven not by his intensity, but by his calm. Stephen's correction, that Stephen is correct, is proven by his humility. In fact, when I, when I started reading this sermon that, that, to myself this week, I started by reading it very intense and driving and punchy. And then as I got to know Stephen more and more, I realized I, I, if you hadn't, I would give you all the money in my pockets right now to guess that Stephen is speaking at a volume barely above a whisper. 
that Stephen is speaking with compassion and tenderness and kindness, a tone that we can't conjure up because it's been so long since we heard someone speak that way. Brothers and fathers, listen to me. Our glorious God appeared to our ancestor Abraham in Mesopotamia before he settled in Haran. One day when Moses was 40 years old, he decided to visit his relatives, the people of Israel. I think he even says it this way. You stubborn people. You are heathen at heart and deaf to truth. How much longer will you resist the Holy Spirit? It's what your ancestors did, and so do you. <laughs> Name one prophet your ancestors didn't persecute. They even killed the ones who predicted the coming of the righteous one, the Messiah whom you betrayed and murdered. You deliberately disobeyed God's law, even though you received it from the hands of angels. Paul says, if I, speak in the tongue, if I speak in tongues of men or angels, but have not love, I am a clashing gong and a clanging cymbal. Proverbs says, a gentle answer turns away wrath. Steph, would you lead us? We like to take this response time because we don't just want to hear the word of God and walk away unchanged, but we want to um, be transformed by it. And so um, as Kyle was preaching the sermon, um, kind of the three things that came to my mind was, uh, the first was the idea of scripture. And um, this is a, even a, a realization I keep having from the Lord that I need to be taking in more scripture, that if we want to live like Jesus, if we want to um, talk like Jesus, and then we have to be taking in his word and we have to be understanding it. And so my first question would be, um, is the Father inviting you to take in more of his word, whether that's through listening to it or reading it or studying it? Uh, my second question is, um, what role does wisdom play in your life? It said that Stephen was full of wisdom. And so, um, and scripture also says that when we ask for wisdom and do not doubt, we will receive it. And so is that something the Father's inviting you to? Is he inviting you to ask for more wisdom? And then third is this idea of walking by the Spirit. I think that not only did Stephen know Scripture, but I think the Spirit really downloaded to him the, the stories and the things that he needed to say in that moment. And so um, I would just invite you to step into that more. Is that something that the Father's inviting you to, to step into walking with the Spirit and learning more about that? And it really is something you have to learn about and grow in. Um, we have a link to our Naturally Supernatural. That'd be a great place to start. So which one of those areas maybe is the Father highlighting for you this morning? And then separately from that, as we prayed before the service this morning, uh, two or three of us just kind of had a sense that there's um, a lot of sadness, that maybe someone's really just under the weight of sadness. And so if that's you this morning, I would just invite you, if you uh, feel comfortable, to come back and to pray with us. We'll be back in the Otterbein room. We'd love to pray over you if you're struggling with that today. Um, we'd love to walk alongside you and pray for you and pray with you this morning as well. So we're going to take a few minutes just to ask you to see what the Father's highlighting for you. And then uh, Julia is going to close us um, with a song. Go in peace this morning. Have a blessed week. See you next week. <laughs>